0: Hi everybody, this is Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for February 27th, 2018. Uh, You guys get another treat today instead of listening to me ramble about some obscure thing. Uh, We have a guest uh, in a couple of, uh, well, maybe a minute here. Uh, I'm going to be joined via Skype by Hannah Geis. Hannah is a freelance writer. I'll do a more thorough introduction when I have her on the line. But she specializes in Russia uh, and especially things like the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, She's also done a lot of work on... The Russia Gate madness that is sweeping the left in America, or the liberals in America—I shouldn't say the left. Uh, so we're going to talk about that, and we'll talk about Vladimir Putin, and we'll talk about Russia today, not the channel, but the actual country, Russia in the present day, um, and uh, you know the U.S.-Russia relationship and and where things stand and where things are headed. Uh, so. Yeah, we're uh, it should be a good show, and uh, I hope you all enjoy it. Now let's get to it. Okay, so I'm joined by Hannah Geiss, and uh, Hannah, you can feel free to correct me if I get any of this wrong. Uh, but <laughs> Hannah is a <coughs> freelance writer who's uh, written things for Low Blog, The Pacific Standard, Al Jazeera America, First Things, and uh, many other publications. Uh, She's worked at the Baffler, at the Washington Spectator, and at the Foreign Policy Association. Right now, she's in graduate school at Harvard Divinity, uh, focusing on Russian orthodoxy and nationalism in post-Soviet Russia. Uh, In other words, she's a a Russian active measure, and uh, we've got her here to, to grill her about Vladimir Putin's nefarious plans for world domination. Uh, She also has a paid Twitter feed called Game Theory this weekend where she takes Eric Garland's paid tweets and writes them backwards uh, so you have to look in a mirror to decode them. No, I I made that part up. Um, (laughs) uh, That's not
1: a bad idea,
0: though. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have so many ideas for stealing his tweets, but I I feel like it would be a copyright thing. Um, (laughs) So, Anna, thank you very much for agreeing to be on uh, the show, and I'm very excited to have you here and I'm sure everybody's very excited to listen. No
1: obviously. problem. Happy to be here.
0: So I want to talk about um, Russian orthodoxy and the role that it plays in Vladimir Putin's Russia, because I find that to be a very interesting topic that doesn't get a lot of attention. But we're going to do that later. Uh, the first thing I thought we could do is laugh at the, the Russia Gate kooks uh, for a few minutes. Uh, so my my first question is, Vladimir Putin, evil genius or evil super genius?
1: Um, I would say evil demon. I think that's a slightly (laughs) more accurate descriptor. Um, He's too great to be a super genius, the real uh, super genius. I mean, there is, of course, the Gerasimov Doctrine, which uh, was concocted by the true super-geniuses surrounding Vladimir Putin. Oh, yes.
0: Oh, yes. We will will definitely be talking about
1: that. (laughs) Um, The other... uh, uh, Naturally, um, Putin, as a satanic demon sent to orchestrate world domination, I mean, he has armies of unwitting minions at his disposal. His, Louise Menz told me this. His shadow, uh,
0: shadow warriors, yes.
1: <laughs> I am one of them, I think. Uh,
0: well, you might be. I mean, maybe people don't even know. Maybe there are people out there that are doing his bidding and, and they don't even know. They're uh, they're just so deep programmed that it's, you know.
1: <laughs> well, that is what Molly McHugh actually does think of uh, grad students in area studies. Seriously. Russian area. Yeah, this happened in. I mean, this happened in Middle East studies
0: too. Back after 9-11, when people said, uh, "You know, why didn't you guys predict that this completely unforeseen event would happen?" And like, first of all, people had been talking about like Al Qaeda and extremism for years before that in these area studies programs. But secondly, like, this was you know, it's just a, a, a the sort of typical right-wing attack on the university, basically. That, that like, these programs that are supposed to be, you know, to learn about other places in the world are actually, you know, should actually serve the national security state or else you have no purpose.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, especially considering the fact that most of the people I even... Most of the people I know aren't even doing research on the here and now. Uh, I think I'm probably one of the few people... In, in Orthodox studies at Harvard who's focusing on modern orthodoxy it's pretty rare
0: yeah yeah I mean it was it's yeah it was the same way when I was doing uh, Middle East studies at the University of Chicago it's like you know most people are doing early Islam or the the middle period there are some people who do modern uh, studies but modern you know the modern period in that context is Uh, quite a bit you know broader than the last 20 years or whatever so yeah Yeah. it's you know people do what they want
1: exactly and that's okay and that's what we should be able to do (laughs) exactly exactly
0: so uh, i mean i'm joking about the evil genius or evil super genius thing but it is a, a question that i wanted to put to you in a more serious way because there's this perception in the united states and i i mean it's it's i think i don't think it's a left or right thing i think it's a commonly held kind of dc perception that putin is like always 12 steps ahead of everybody else that he's got this master plan for the world and like everybody else is just playing catch up and to me this is like total nonsense you know i see him you know when he does things that that uh, cross the United States, like in Georgia or Syria, he's or Ukraine, he's always reacting. He's reactive to events. He's not like, you know, he didn't plan out the coup that overthrew Yanukovych in in Ukraine. Like he reacted to that. He wasn't prepared for these things. It's not like part of his master plan. And he's done things like. You know, the his Eurasian Economic Union, which was supposed to be his big uh, counterpart to the European Union and has been basically a bust. I mean, he's got like five countries in it and one of them wants out, I think. Uh, <laughs> so if you could comment on that, that would be, uh, you know, I, I'd love to get your perspective on that.
1: Well, there was the first thing I think of is there's a piece of the New Yorker by uh, Joshua Yaffa. I think back in july um that ta- that talked a lot about this specifically he interviewed a lot of russian journalists and academics many of whom have been really frustrated by the american media coverage of putin particularly because it tends to portray putin as as you said someone who really has predicted all of what's going to happen and has this grand scheme for the world um but there was this really good uh, quote from the author of *All the Kremlin Men*, *All the Kremlin's Men*, where he notes Putin seems se- uh, Putin seems to look much smarter than he is, as if he operates on some master plan. Uh, but the truth is, there's no plan; it's chaos. And I think that pretty much summarizes it, uh, in the sense of like. Yeah, the Eurasian Economic Union is a really good example because there was this grand, this grand scheme um, built on, roughly built on Eurasianist theory to some extent, that was supposed to create this this power that would be able to essentially challenge the U.S. And of course, it's not going to happen. It's a, Russia is a flailing superpower. Um, it's going to stay that way, because it, it, the, I mean, partly because of oil. Well, this is and, yeah. I mean, that's part of like, you know, if he
0: had a master plan, it would surely involve some way of getting oil prices up, right? I mean, like, if he was 15 steps ahead of everybody, this would be the first thing on his list to take care of. And yet, you know, the Russian economy is in tatters, mostly, as you say, over oil. And then, you know, added to that the sanctions that he's uh, taken over uh, Ukraine and Syria.
1: Yeah. Well, and he has a a network of cronies surrounding him that are going to try and extract what they can out of the economy and whose main interests have to do with securing their own wealth. And a lot of I think a lot of what you end up seeing are policies that are implemented to allow them to do that, as opposed to any sort of long standing grand scheme, even just for the health of Russia. Um, I mean, to be clear, the Russian economy is not my thing. Um, But from a personal perspective, that's always what it seems like. Yeah. So,
0: uh, no, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Oh, no, uh, I, th- I, th- I think there was just background noise. Okay,
0: all right, there's a l- always background noise uh, at my house. Uh, people who listen to this podcast know that by now, but uh, I should have warned <laughs> you before we started, I guess. That's uh, okay. Um, so talk Now, talk about, uh, this is uh, one of the areas that you... Uh, cover or have covered in in some of the things that you've written uh the degree to which 2016 broke everybody's brains about (laughs) russia and the you know the the investigation and the uh, the the ties between trump and putin and the way that they've gotten turned into this whole kind of cottage industry of people who are promised that they're going to tell you the the whole story. They know they've, they've cracked the code and they've got all the details. I feel like you can almost at this point create like a taxonomy of these folks. Like you have the, the diehard kind of democratic party, partisan folks like the share blue crowd and uh, a lot of the people on MSNBC. And then you have (laughs) The people who want to kind of break into legitimate media, like Seth Abramson, for example, strikes me as, as this. And then you have the people who are just kind of totally grifting on this thing. And there's like Molly McHugh and Eric Garland, and to an even greater degree, somebody like Louise Mensch, who I don't think has much standing. She did, though, uh, you know, uh, terrifyingly for a while. Uh, but I think she's kind of blown it. And it it's just kind of reached levels like if there are flashes that are just so crazy like the Roy Moore thing do you remember that during the special election <laughs> when he, yes. he said like one thing in like you know first week of first year Russian level Russian and he went to West Point and studied the language like this is part of his biography but everybody just like went crazy and they're like, oh my God he's a Russian agent listen to him. So if you could, you know, give me your kind of sense of of what's going on here, that would be wonderful.
1: I think there are a couple of different things. I think there's the, so I'd say the, there are the McHugh types who are these paid consultants who have been working in the region for years. Now, to be clear, I, I'm not actually, my Russian is bad, uh, just to be upfront about that. I like to be aggressively upfront it's, about it's, that because a lot of be other people mine, aren't. So. What
0: it's got to be better than
1: mine, so you. I would hope so at this point, (laughs) but uh, um, the thing is, McHugh. There's limited evidence that McHugh speaks Russian, yet has passed herself off as a Russia expert, managing to get her way into Senate subcommittees, um, doing very. Yeah, I I don't even know why, um. (laughs) But she's made. Probably at this point, millions, if not uh, uh, hundreds, if not just hundreds of thousands, off of working for corrupt Eastern European um, and Central European uh, politicians. Um is probably one of the probably the most prominent of the people that she's worked with. Really? Oh, my God. That's, yeah, that's crazy. Yep. Yeah. So she. She would say, I, I would say she's probably the most insidious. Um, Louise Mensch, Eric Garland's, they're those types I think are kind of floundering at this point, despite Louise Mensch's like nice New York Times opinion piece. <laughs> also, I'm still fucking amazed that happened. <laughs> I know one person at the New York Times uh, opinion page. And he's very nice, so and I just kind of want to ask, dude. Like what, why what were you
0: thinking? but you know the, the new york times opinion page is not covering itself in glory in general
1: these days um no but I, I think the main thing that's happened is especially among the types that are not mainlining adderall um so eric garland uh I think what essentially happened is that they don't really want to take responsibility or deal with the horror of the 2016 election. Larry Tribe is probably a really good example of this. Um, the guy is has just descended onto a bizarre shitposting habit of he called for a children's crusade the other day. Uh, <laughs> That's right, I, think, I forgot about that. Yeah, kind of forgetting what that... Apparently, either forgetting or not knowing what that meant. What or actually even worse. happened, yeah. Yeah, or even worse, actually, he supported the Children's Crusade and just wants another one. <laughs> but I, I think that's most of them. And I think, like, you see that among people like Joy Reed, who I think is well-intentioned, and I don't think she's a bad person. I think she's kind of inane. But... They're just spewing garbage, because that's sort of what you have to do with, A, a 24-hour news cycle, um, B, when everyone is on Twitter constantly, and C, when you're scared of something. Oh. And Russia has become something that people can be scared of. And what's amazing about it is sometimes it feels like we're not even talking about a real country, we're just talking about a weird boogeyman. <laughs>
0: You know, if you had grown up in Soviet Yugoslavia the way that Joy Reid did, you might feel differently about this.
1: That's true. I was I was born two years before the before the USSR fell, so yeah. What do I know? Um, the yeah, I mean, the, you know, I feel like
0: uh, Garland and and like John Schindler is, is the other one. the, the guys that I. I can't get over just because they've now found this paid Twitter thing and people are paying them thousands of dollars a month to tweet. Just to tweet. Just tweeting. Here's tweeting. Here's my you know, ten bucks a month and you get, you know, three hundred people and you're making three thousand three thousand dollars a month to tweet. It just blows my mind. It totally blows my mind. It's
1: it's good work if you can get it. <laughs> I guess. So uh, the 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 this has descended
0: to me like you know we kind of make fun of all these guys and and for a while there you know I started to feel bad about making fun of like Garland until he got this paid Twitter thing and now I'm just enraged but um, you know you, you start to kind of it gets to the point where it's not haha ha funny anymore it's just weird but they've they've taken the Russia kind of you know overarching fear of Russian involvement into places that are I just find offensive at this point. I mean, you've, you have people who talk about, you know, Garland himself has blamed, like, Ferguson on Russia and 9-11 on Russia and the Parkland shooting even on Russia. You have people who blame the Black Lives Matter movement on Russia. I think Louise Mensch said that Russia murdered Andrew Breitbart, which is a, yep. just, mwah, perfect. Perfect, Um, and you know, and this this goes even you know into like the uh, the share blue people. Like you've got people like Eric Bollert online who talk about you know Russia fomenting American racism and our gun culture, as if we need any help with those things. And it's just it's just it's gone into places that I like. I think you're right. It comes out of a place where they don't want to acknowledge or deal with the responsibility of what happened in 2016. But now it's like, we're excusing every sin in American history, basically on the basis that Russia made us do it.
1: Well, I would add to that, that Russia killed Jesus. (laughs) um, I, I, I think there's a very plausible uh, story here. Um, they definitely put together a time machine and went back to the Roman empire and, uh, killed God. Um, subsequently 900, uh, uh, about what? 956 years later, they adopted Christianity for some reason, probably to get over their overarching guilt, but Hey, but yeah, it's, it's weird. I mean, I I actually got blocked by Cher. It feels weird to say this, but I actually got blocked by Cher Blue for a while. <laughs> because I, I forget who it was, who, who specifically it was there, but it, they have this one woman who I think might be their like, social media editor or something. Maybe they're managing editor. I don't even know. But she went on some bizarre rant about it was roughly around the time that some of the Senate hearings started. And I think it was Clint Watts may have been the one testifying who pointed out that there was evidence that there were pro-Bernie bots among these, this kind of like eclectic array of Russian bots. And she pointed out that because she had been harassed online, that this was obviously evidence that it was the Russians and that she knew this. Of course, the question is, well, how do you know that? Um, Which naturally gets you blocked. Uh, (laughs) I have no idea.
0: It's obvious. I mean, come on.
1: Yeah. But they're increasingly willing to pretty much blame, yeah, as you said, to blame pretty much anything on Russia. Despite the fact that, really, Russian interests lie mostly with its near abroad somewhat to a lesser, like, to a slightly lesser extent with focusing on the EU and, uh, say, greater Asia Asia as well. And then the U.S., I mean, the ability to influence the U.S. is, like, significantly more diminished than their ability to, say, influence Ukraine or Georgia or any of these kind of, like, separate various separatist regions that are sort of just hunkered down at this point well it's i mean it is unless they
0: get us to lose our minds yeah which is you know there are parallels here i don't want to go all like eric garland but there are parallels here with 9-11 where the the idea was to poke america you know with a with a uh, you know a horrible attack but one that was uh, in the big scheme of things, a terrorist attack, you know, that the kind of thing that happens all over the world constantly, and just see what happened, like to see if you could get America to go nuts and lose its mind. And it worked. You know, we, we went into Iraq and we broke the Middle East. And I feel like, you know, this is the same, uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of, like Bin Laden's reaction to the response to 9-11 was like, I can't believe that they, uh, you know, I can't believe that they did it worked this well. I never imagined. I feel like Putin may be sitting there going, doing the same thing. Like, I can't believe our Twitter, our investment of like five hundred thousand dollars in some Twitter and Facebook, Facebook trolls, has caused the United States to
1: completely lose its shit. And yet, you know, here we are. Yeah, I think that's definitely accurate. I mean, I. When you read some of the reports um, from, I think most, a lot of them were put together by American journalists or Western journalists in Moscow uh, and or St. Petersburg, but some of these descriptions of the celebratory uh, nature in certain Russian circles after Trump's election, one of the overarching themes of it too was sort of confusion. Um, No one quite predicted this. (laughs) is from what i could gather that after a certain point things seem to clearly be working to some extent and i guess the part that was probably the most effective was breaking the media's brain in terms of hillary's emails but yeah after that i mean it's all truly bizarre um and if anything it's shown Americans' propensity to just be complete idiots, uh, which you would think we would try and work on that, maybe. Well, we've
0: had a long time, and I, I think that ship has sailed, frankly. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the, uh, the Garasimov Doctrine earlier, and this is one manifestation of the madness that uh, is particularly fascinating. So why don't you... Uh, Uh, Tell us a little more about that. (laughs) So
1: so the Gerasimov Doctrine has become a sort of pet project of Molly McHugh. In fact, you can basically kind of originate a lot of the hysteria with her. Um, It's named after a Russian general um, who, Gerasimov, obviously, uh, who wrote an article in February 2013 entitled The Value of Sciences and Foresight? Um, somehow, this article, despite having very little to do with hybrid warfare, has been interpreted as a doctrine all about hybrid warfare. Um, and for those who advocate the doctrine's existence, uh, even though there really isn't such a thing, um, it basically combines several issues into one big strategic objective, war, uh, strategic warfare objective. Um, the assumption that McHugh pushes is that the Kremlin prefers political warfare because of its low cost. Um, in the eyes of a lot of experts, uh, so Mark, uh, Galeo Galeotti, I probably pronounced his last name wrong. Mark, I'm sorry. Um, It's basically become, he's basically been turned into this modern Machiavelli. So people like McHugh has used it uh, as early as 2014 in an article in the Washington Post uh, called "Playing by Putin's Tactics to essentially argue that we need to arm ourselves, so to speak, against this new form of hybrid warfare. Uh, For McHugh, she's she said in a politico piece that fighting a new cold war would be in america's interest and what she's specifically referring to is again building up against this supposed doctrine now there have been several there have been several academic articles uh mostly from people focused on national security i think there was one uh published published by someone who did like military and strategic affairs uh basically saying hey this isn't real why are we using it but somehow it's proliferated especially ever since trump's election when this has been pointed to when trump's election was pointed to as probably basically the most successful uh instance of the doctrine the Garasimov doctrine being carried out <laughs> which of course makes no sense and I kind of I, I sort of wonder like is, do, are there a bunch of Russian generals just sitting around going, well thank you <laughs> um, <laughs> No
0: they're all online they're on they're on Facebook uh, typing out memes.
1: <laughs> yeah they were the one what was the Bernie calendar meme?
0: Oh god, I don't know.
1: The the one with the Rainbow Bernie. No, it was a coloring book. The Rainbow Bernie coloring book.
0: Oh Jesus. I don't even think I've seen that one.
1: Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> but um I was one of the I was one of the Internet Research Agency uh posts. Uh, but yeah, somehow as a result of this this doctrine is I mean, it comes up in hearings now all the time. Um um, and not just from McHugh, from other people, too. And they're just... I don't even know... I, I don't even know why. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I, is, it, is it like the the way that these guys all use, like, the four words of Russian that they know, which are all cognates of English words, to, to Comprom- sound like... Yeah, compromise and desinformatia and provocazia. There's another one I forget, but, like, you know, is it one of these things that you just throw around to look like you know what you're talking about, basically? Like, I, I'm a Russian expert. Look at me.
1: Yeah. It's an effective name drop. It, it, it's an effective name drop. Um, and it might get you through a conversation with some kind of shitty think tank types. Um, I think if I... Uh, I I waltzed into the Davis Center, which is the center for Russian Russian and kind of broader Eurasian studies here at Harvard, and just spouted off about the dangers of the doctrine. Um, a professor would probably rightfully slap me over the head, and my <laughs> status as a graduate student associate would hopefully be rescinded. Um, so it really, it, yeah... I think it, I think it is basically just as you as you said one of those things that they can point to to show that they're smart. It's like sort it's of like, like the, the, the way secret, you would talk about jihad. Yeah, exactly,
0: exactly. Or uh, Taqiya is a good one. Uh, that's one of my favorites for the fake Middle Eastern experts because um, <laughs> they always get it wrong. But it's it's like one of the words that you use is a secret handshake to let everybody know you're in the club.
1: Naturally. Um, so. To to
0: give the other side of this its due, like I don't, I, I want to get your take on how big a role you think Russian meddling played in the election. I don't know if you had a chance to see uh, the intercepts uh, podcast, the recent one where they did a it was a debate between Glenn Greenwald and James Risen. and Greenwald's been sort of the most prominent I think voice on the left just kind of poo-pooing this whole thing. Like, there's nothing to this story. There's nothing to the investigation. You know, yada yada. And Ryzen has been, you know, very much on the opposite end. Not that he's, like, out there pushing uh, these weird doctrines or anything like that, but, you know, he's he's been arguing that there is something going on here and there, there may have... There's evidence that there was a relationship and this is problematic and... Uh, you know, I, I wonder what you where you fall on on that uh, continuum.
1: My guess is, yeah, I haven't watched it, but um, my guess is I would probably fall more along the li- lines of James Risen. Um, I think there is something here. I think it's interesting. Um, actually, I mean, mostly I think it's interesting. Um, I think. One of the main things that is often forgotten on the left... I mean, we like to joke about the whole Hillary's email obsession um, and how everyone is just going to blame Hillary's loss on the emails, 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 et cetera. You get the idea. Right. But um, (laughs) as far as what aspect of this was probably the most successful is... Assuming, and I mean, I don't know. I know there has been some debate on the origins of these various hacks. Assuming that the emails were done by were done by an organization affiliated with the Russian government, um, I think that's probably the most influential part of this. I think the Facebook. Twitter, et cetera, stuff more sh- says more about Facebook and Twitter than it really does about Russia's ability to influence our election. But the fact that these emails were hacked, they were dumped on WikiLeaks, the media was went nuts over them for months, I that's probably, to me, that's always struck me as the more dangerous and almost more telling thing. The fact that we were able to get this riled up over something that I—I I mean, this is just this is just my opinion, but looking back on some of the coverage of the the Podesta email leaks, it's like, eh, yeah. there's not really right. much there that's new, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the pro- the problem with talking about the Russia issue, quote unquote, now is that there is something there, but you can't really say that because either. You can't really say that without a bunch of caveats because there are these people who are trying to turn this into a giant, crazy story. Um, And it feels like you spend a lot of your time just saying, well, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, that didn't happen, without actually focusing on what did happen and analyzing how to prevent it in the future. Yeah, that,
0: I, I definitely agree with that. You're sort of playing defense all the time against these people that are have lost their minds. And yeah. you know, there's no there's no opportunity to even allow for, you know, there's no opportunity to talk about what may really have happened because, you know, it's like you're you're seeding the debate basically to to the the nuts. Exactly. So, okay, moving Past the 2016 election and the the craziness that has ensued, um, you wrote a piece a few months ago about uh, it was called "Who's Afraid of the Russian Soul?" for the Baffler, and this was, I mean, it was partly about the the 2016 craziness, but I think it touched on uh, a more important theme, which is the idea of Russia forever as the other which you know has implications for the way that the u.s russia relationship has developed since the end of the cold war and not i don't mean that in a positive way um so i wonder if you could talk about um that you know expand on that theme a little bit and um you know why you think it is that we didn't make some different choices say in the 1990s uh to treat russia a little differently than we did
1: yeah i mean so so i guess just to quickly explain the russian soul concept so it's a something that actually originated in the 19th century um it was it's a term that's been embraced by intellectuals in both east and west uh particularly in, in the east among slavophiles who wanted to have a stand-in term to explain why russia was different why it had to develop differently and kind of the, the future the future for the country um and yeah so i mean basically then in the west at least it's then be, become taken up as a sort of like otherizing method this is why Russia can't develop. Um, this is why Russia won't develop. Um, and within the context, of, especially within the context of the 1990s, I think a lot of it sort of was more out in the sort of moralism surrounding building up the former Soviet region. Um, and specifically, well, why, why when we... Jam these neoliberal policies down their throat. Why won't they take it? Well, they won't take it because there's something different about them. Um, Despite the fact that the obvious answer was that the country just wasn't quite ready for these series of shocks. Um, Both, I mean, on an economic level and on the political level, uh, it's clearly why we have Putin today at least a big part of it. And it's clearly why there is a lot of this animosity towards us. And in that respect, it's really hard to argue with. Well, I think like you know
0: to get, to kind of punch back at the idea that Russians are different than the rest of us or different than the West. Like you know, when you've seen the same sort of shock doctrine neoliberal policies applied to the United, in the United States or in the UK or in France or the rest of Europe, the backlash is always the same. I mean, everybody rejects these policies because they suck. So yeah, yeah, they make life hard for people when it's, you know, doesn't need to be. And so you get things like Brexit, which of course, um, I apologize because that's a Russian operation and you get the rise of the you know Marine Le Pen in France, and and also uh, a Russian operation. Also a Russian operation. Sorry, I don't know what I'm thinking. Um, you know the rise of uh, right wing populist parties in Central and Eastern Europe, which is also sorry, Russian operation, and Trump. So it's not it's not like it didn't take in Russia because there's something wrong with the Russian brain. They, they don't take anywhere. Nobody likes this stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think there's been a a, a little bit, not, although not nearly as much, um, sort of, uh, of a sort of mea culpa coming from some people who were put, pushing these theories. Uh, what is what is really bizarre is I, I actually took a class um, last semester on Eurasian politics, and one of the things we did kind of talk about was this sort of optimism after the fall of the USSR. There's this sense of possibility, and what these IMF types are really seizing upon is that, and... But they can never seem to figure out, like, oh, well, there's this great sense of possibility. Well, okay, so the, you have the sense of possibility in other places too, like all the places you mentioned. But then they basically just go in and destroy it. Um, and part, I think, part of the neoliberal mindset is they will never ever be able to understand that. <laughs> what? Right. I
0: mean, we're we're freeing up the markets. Why don't you people like this? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah it's like. Why, why are you why are you yelling about closed borders now? Yeah, we well, fixed your economy. <laughs> yeah, well, you're all you're all
0: you know working three jobs now to do what one job used to do back in the 1960s. What's the problem? What's wrong? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, here we are though. I mean, the choices that that were made in the 90s, which I think you know. Uh, n- not just in in the sort of economic experimentation, but the the decision to treat Russia as, uh, you know, the loser of the Cold War rather than as a new country in Europe that could be brought into the the rest of the system. I mean, the, you know, these choices were made. I think they've worked out disastrously, and you have Vladimir Putin and the the broken U.S.-Russia relationship that we have now. Talk a little bit about i i know we you know we made fun of Putin's genius at the beginning of the you know the idea that he's 50 steps ahead of everybody but he does have things that he's after so um you know talk about what it is that he wants and uh if you could you know expand actually you talked about eurasianism when we you know mentioned the Eurasian economic union what you know what's what that's about and uh kind of what his goal is is uh you know in in that regard and building up his near abroad etc
1: yeah i mean i it, there's a lot of debate as to whether putin is trying to say bring back an empire of sorts um which eurasianism which we'll get to in a second sort of ties into but i mean i, th- I think one of the main things and this is when you actually talk to putin supporters well like one of the senses is bringing back a sort of sense of Greatness and, like, just a sense of goodness um, and strength that was really taken away in the 90s. Um, And a lot factors into that. Obviously, there's obviously an economic aspect. Uh, I mean, what I'm more interested in would be the foreign policy aspect. Uh, To some extent, things like interfering in the near abroad may affect that specifically ukraine where you see a big uptick in approval ratings after the invasion um but i i it's hard to say uh, i think there's a there is definitely at this point a cottage industry of explaining what putin wants um and it often falls short of the mark mostly because none of it ever really focuses on putin himself and just focuses on this kind of idea of putin um who i don't know if you've ever read the book mr putin i would recommend it um it basically is a sort of so it's kind of like a political biography of putin in in the sense of looking at him from all these different angles And one of the main focuses, one of the things that really focuses on is power and efforts to bring back the sense of power to Russia. Um, So Eurasianism, which is this concept that arose in the uh, 19th century, um, found renewed, found footing among a lot of emigre uh, thinkers after the after the um, revolution, it's found new ground in this, uh, partly because it does give a concrete plan to making Russia great again, so to speak. <laughs> um, the, the thing is, it's generally, it, it, it's, mo- it, it's most well-known manifestation is peddled by a guy named Alexander Dugan, who is a political scientist and writer who has... Fans in the Russian security state, the extent to how much these fans affect Russian policy is up for a lot of debate. Ukraine is probably a good example of where that actually has happened. Um, But what Ukraine kind of shows is that Eurasianism doesn't really work. It's essentially the idea of—it's sort of a way of bringing back together um, the Soviet empire without it being really an empire. Um, But it also really highlights this idea that Russia is different and that Russia is somehow different than the evil West. And one of the things that Putin really uh, that uh, Dugan really drives home is that America is bad. The modernity that America has put forward is very bad. Um, And it's Russia's job to lead not only its near abroad in itself away from the evilness of American manifestations of modernity but also other parts of the world
0: so one i mean you know as you say a lot of the the sort of putinism business kind of misses the point and i think um I, you know i agree definitely with that i mean for for one thing like i i can't remember the last time I read an article that tried to divine what Putin wants that talked about just like domestic politics in Russia, which is a huge thing. I mean, he's got an 80% approval rating or he, you know, the, the, has had approval ratings over 80% because of his response to Ukraine and because of, you know, his uh, show of muscle in Syria. Like, that's a big factor, I think, for him. Like, this is part of the reason that he engages in these behaviors abroad is to play to the audience at home. And it's not like he has to worry about losing (laughs) the election with the two clowns that are running against him. Um, But he does have to, you know, worry about another outbreak of riots after he wins. And he has to worry about things like turnout, which have, have to do with his legitimacy in a sense. I mean, to win an election with 90% of the vote, but 30% turnout doesn't really say a whole lot. Um, so I feel like, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, there's like basic elements of his approach uh, and like obvious ones that people just miss in this need to kind of portray him as, you know, Dr. Evil or, or Lex Luthor or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I. One thing, have you ever read Masha Gessen's book? Uh, I haven't Command read her, her book. The Face? No. I haven't read that now. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like there are a bunch of there are a bunch of books that kind of bring up the, do a really good job of bringing up that point, and um, I mean, of course, she is. I don't always agree with her, but uh, she has, of course, drawn recently drawn the ire of uh, Miss Molly McHugh. <laughs> yes. Oh God. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's this idea that we really don't know. We don't know him, and the domestic, like to, and this factors into the whole domest, domestic, policy, foreign policy debate too. That there are these many, these many attempts to divine what's going on in the Kremlin, um, and it's just so much of it is unclear i think that is a big factor and there, there are a lot of there's a lot of research in, into that as well um some of it points that points to the domestic question as being a much more prominent factor in foreign policy decision making some of it points to ideology as being a more prominent factor um i personally yeah i personally do tend to take the domestic angle but it you have to do you have to be careful not to overhype it too much
0: sure yeah i mean it's you know but it's it seems like you know it's the mainstream commentary on this stuff in america is like he's just out to dominate the world and you know you ignore other things like domestic politics that i think are much more mundane Ass, you know yeah. motivations for
1: for what he does. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot sexier to. they They seem to have died down, thank God, because they're about to give me a heart attack um, <laughs> and anger. But there, for a while, uh, especially after the election, were a bunch of articles saying that th- this was this was obviously all concocted by Alexander Dugan, who for from what I can tell, I mean, I'm not in Russia, but he isn't exactly a big player in the Kremlin right now? <laughs> um, and they were basically trying to argue that, well, because Dugan does talk about world domination, uh, but he, can, he does kind of, um, obviously this is what Putin is doing. What if him, um,
0: him not being a big deal in the Kremlin is just desinformatia, though?
1: That could that could be true. So. I I probably need to stop listening to all these journalists in Russia who <laughs> point that out.
0: It's all they're all they're all FSB. I mean, it, it, I guess yeah. Everybody still says KGB. no, no, no.
1: They're KGB. Yeah, remember? Yeah,
0: yeah. I I I know. I'm trying to trying to get the... God, we're all back in the Soviet Union. <laughs> um, so now you know we have. I don't want to take much more of your time but um, I as, as I said in the beginning of this interview I think one of the least covered aspects of Putin and of Russia today is the degree to which um, Russian orthodoxy plays a role in the state and Putin's expression of his religiosity plays a role in his kind of you know the image that he projects to to Russians. Can you could you talk about that because it's it's really something I think is very interesting, but little attention is paid to it.
1: Yeah. So, like a lot of like a lot of these things, it is kind of hard to tell specifically with Putin how much the church matters to him. Um, but the thing is, after especially after the fall of the USSR, it became much more of an institution, and especially. Um, within the past decade or so, it's become much more favored by the state, which has seen it as, I think, rightfully. And there's a long-standing history of this. It has seen the church as a sort of uh, useful institution in nation-building and building a Russian identity. Um, the thing with Russia is the majority majority of people are are Orthodox, but not really practicing and I think that's kind of an important thing to remember, that a lot of this is really about identity. Um, And the church has become... The church has always been extremely conservative, (laughs) Uh, which, as actually, as someone who was received into the Greek Orthodox Church uh, over 10 years ago, um, is a matter of personal frustration. Um, But... In recent years, it's sort of used its emphasis on tradition to push a series of extremely conservative uh, social reforms. Um, much of which is focused on boosting the family, like boosting the family, quote unquote. Uh, but really, specifically, aggressive homophobia. I mean, the church, it, the church itself has been pretty crucial in pushing kind of anti, anti-gay anti rhetoric. Um, but what you end up finding with a lot of individual priests and also a lot of individual politicians is that they're very eager to use orthodoxy as a way of otherizing LGBTQ populations and justifying any number of oppressions against against them. Um it has, to some extent, played a role in Ukraine. Um, Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church, the majority of its parishes are actually in Ukraine. Um, losing Ukraine would have been a massive loss for the church. Um, and, But it also doesn't necessarily align perfectly with the state there. Um, there's a lot of debate about ukrainian identity and the church is a little more willing to sway on uh, ukraine allowing a ukrainian identity than say the russian state is um it's interesting it's it's and it's a bizarre relationship that is going to be interesting to watch in the years to come specifically the church came into putin's favor under ukraine during the ukrainian crisis it There was some sort of, not really, it's hard to say animosity, but there were just some sort of disagreements on what they wanted to achieve. Um, But the church has also come out in favor of Syria. Um, And how that's going to change in the years to come, especially since I can't imagine that faithfulness among Russians is going to grow significantly, uh, is going to be interesting to watch.
0: It's interesting that they've – the Syria thing, um, you know, I feel like there's a – we're at a little bit of a turning point for Syria after the the uh, incident a couple of weeks ago where, you know, two or three hundred Russian contractors, in quotes, because they get – you know, they wind up being used for – you know to serve in a military capacity but it's like plausible deniability for the russian government but you know we're all killed in in uh u.s airstrikes after they tried to attack a u.s position in eastern syria and i feel like he's finally like putin is finally taking some heat for his syria policy now because you have angry uh you know, Russian mothers talking about how the state has abandoned their sons who died in Syria. And uh, it's, you know, it's it's an interesting development, I think, uh, to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do kind of, I wonder how, you would know more about this than me, but I do wonder how much longer they're going to be able to stay there as much as they are there. Or if they're going to pull back.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like they would happily already be out if it wasn't for um, the fact that, like, I think Assad is pushing things a lot more than Russia is at this point. Like, he, he wants total control of the country. He doesn't want to negotiate until he has it. And, you know, I think they would happily at this point go to the negotiating table and work out a deal with uh the quote-unquote moderate rebels, uh, so that they can declare victory and get out. But I, I, they can't at the same time. Like they've invested so much in Assad that, like he kind of he kind of has them by the, uh, you know, by the tail at this point. He can kind of force them to continue supporting him. Yeah. So, yeah. So so okay. Last question. Um What do you see? As the chances for fixing the U.S.-Russia relationship in the near future,
1: I have no idea. <laughs> 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 I feel like, to some extent, that's the most intellectually honest answer.
0: Um, You're probably right. Yeah,
1: I think the main. I, I, I think one of the main things is, well trump isn't trump obviously is not gonna do anything i, I wrote that a bunch of us have written various pieces especially after his election being like hey U.S. russia policy isn't gonna change if anything it's gonna get worse and well it got worse so oops <laughs> um it sucks to be right
0: i mean he's such a uh, dumbass he's not gonna get anything positive done like people just need to abandon yeah. that any any fantasy that something good's gonna happen <laughs> while he's president
1: yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's hard to say because Trump isn't going to do anything. Um, and the most that Trump at this point could probably do is just prevent de-escalation. I think Syria is probably the most viable hotspot at this point. Um, the There are a lot of very smart people who disagree with this. I was very much opposed to uh, sending arms to Ukraine. Um I think that's one spot that is going to be remain a particularly sore spot. Um, but yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, there are probably if we do more sanctions, which I, I'm not 100 percent comfortable saying if I think is a good idea or not, because I really don't know <laughs> um, if we if we do that, that's going to damage things even further and i guess the question i guess the question is really the only way that we're gonna ever repair anything is figuring out what what we want um and it seems at this point that no one really knows what they want out of russia what they what our interests with russia should be what our shared interests are it's a big question mark right what
0: about um, you know? I mean, we're we're at a point where hey, Putin's standing for president again this year. He says it's going to be his last term. You know, do you, is it is it time to start thinking about what Russia's going to look like when he's no longer at the center of everything, or is it still too early to 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 talk about that?
1: I don't think it's I don't think it's too early to think about it. Um, I think the Optimism that you find in a lot of, among a lot of like U.S. pundits, uh, specifically, just ignoring the ones who think that Novani is going to win because they always say he's going to win and then he never does. <laughs> um, and I think I remember looking—I remember looking at polling data on this, and it was, it was like a little over fifty percent of the people polled knew who he was. So like, yeah, no, he's not going to win. Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> always always where you want to start half the country has heard of you so you know that's good
1: congratulations and so you're the fa- you're the favored opposition boogeyman um, well and he's i mean you know he's a
0: right-wing nationalist too isn't he i mean he's 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 anti-corruption or i guess anti-corruption at least when Vladimir Putin's involved but he's his politics are not good from a left-wing perspective i don't think are they
1: no i think He's probably, as far as, as much as the left needs a policy that's explicitly anti-Putin, I think throwing you, throwing their weight behind the momentum that Navalny has been able to acquire can be helpful. But yeah, I mean, he's still he's still right-wing, and you have to be honest about that. You can't really say that, oh, well, he's going to bring great change. It's like, no, he will, maybe in some respects. Um, but as far as especially like social concerns and some of the some of the I mean obviously matters of like just general racism too, right. you're not gonna right. get change from him on that.
0: Yeah, I mean I feel like if you could capitalize on the attention that he's brought to the corruption issue that would be great. but you have to separate that from him to get to a better place politically.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think we're at a point now where that's even possible. Um, I think what really does need to happen, though, is a sort of reckoning with that whatever comes after Putin, it's not going to be a lovely, rosy politician who really wants good relations with Relations with the West, they may want better relations with the West, and there may be less baggage, but it's going to be different baggage. Um, And unless there's significant change, domestic change within the country itself, that we shouldn't expect massive policy changes from whoever comes next.
0: All right. Well, on that Uh, optimistic note then um (laughs) (laughs) hannah guys thank you very much for uh coming on and talking all about russia and vladimir putin and the 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 compromise and the the desinformatia this has all been desinformatia by the way nobody should pay attention to any of this Um, it's true (laughs) thank you hannah
1: all right thank you
0: okay so i hope everybody enjoyed that uh hannah's great she she's really uh, she really knows her stuff and uh you know you you get into harvard says something right um so uh, i want to thank her again i want to thank hannah geiss uh for being on and uh thank you all for listening and uh we'll talk to you next time take care bye-bye